Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. This episode is brought to you by Gilt. So when it comes to building wealth, taxes are such a big part of the strategy. And even if you're already filed, being proactive about this year to lower your future liability is so important. Gelt actually provides a proactive approach to tax strategy, combining innovative technology and expert CPAs by creating personalized tax strategies for your unique financial needs of multiple revenue streams, M&As, restricted stocks, various investments and more. You can keep your hard-earned money. Our, their proprietary platform ultimately gives you the full transparency of your tax management and direct communication with your CPA to reach your financial goals and grow for your wealth faster. So again, you know, if you're interested in this, go to joingelt.com. Uh, and they are actually on the show notes that I'm going to be posting a very special offer for you all that you can actually enjoy. So again, you know, join guilt. All righty. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Dealmaker Show. So today we have a very exciting guest, you know, a guest that has done it, you know, a few times, you know, that grew up, you know, in the whole entrepreneurial, you know, environment. And I think that we're going to be learning quite a bit, you know, and that you're going to find his story quite inspiring. So without further ado, let's welcome our guest today, Rishi Mandal. Welcome to the show. Alejandro, awesome to be here. Thanks for uh, thanks for having me. So obviously you didn't go that far away from where you were born, you know, in the Bay Area. But, um, you know, I'm sure that they have an immigrant parents, you know, that where they are fighting to give you guys a better future. I'm sure that that was quite inspiring. So give us a little of a walk through memory lane. Rishi, how was life growing up? Yeah, you're right. I grew up here in the Bay and I, I'm still here, um, you know, building things now. Um, my parents came over from India and, um, you know, really fun story. My dad, you know, worked at 7-Eleven at night, you know, at the the desk there um, to pay for his education during the day and kind of finally got that to happen. And as we grew up, we grew up with just a really, um, you know, regular uh, childhood. And then one day when I was 12, my dad came home and said, um, so I quit my job and I'm starting a company, you know, and we're going to do that in the garage here of the house. And we didn't even actually know that that was a crazy thing to do. We were like, oh, okay, is that a thing people do? Sure. Um, but then I got, you know, a front row seat, and this is in the mid-90s, to see, um, to see them quit their jobs and come in with all the excitement, picnic tables, laptops in the, in the garage to, to build a company. And then you see that nonlinear journey. I'm actually, it's unusual to see your own parent kind of become in over their head, like, what the heck did I get myself into? And then they started figuring things out and hiring people. And I got to, as a nerdy little kid, be their IT guy. So I would set up, configure laptops for new hires and fix the broken fax machine, which just gave me an excuse to, to be around that process. I remember in, uh, in the 90s, one day I come home from school and there is an eggplant purple um, Porsche 911 Turbo parked diagonally in our driveway and I was like this is unusual like who does that and you know walk into the I'm coming home from school or something and I see that like my dad and his co-founders are all really buttoned up like dressed up in an awkward way and there was a VC there and my dad was like you know this is the first investor in Hotmail and so from an early age I got to 
you know, I got introduced to this idea that you could invent stuff out of thin air in your garage, you know, if you, if you wanted to. And, and ultimately they built something, you know, that was big. They scaled it and got a building, a campus of buildings and, um, and built a big company. But that obviously for me was foundational. And like you said, both, uh, physically, but also spiritually, I guess, like I haven't gone very far from that, um, from that origin. So my childhood was, um, patenting random ideas and building things out of that garage, you know, once they left and they left us a T1 line and a bunch of laptops in the garage. Um, and, uh, and then, you know, the rest is history. I, I, uh, I've been here ever since. And I know you see, you know, for you, I mean, that, that first row seat that you got to, to experience that journey with your dad, you know, that's, that's how lucky were you to really experience that? Because I mean, obviously that company ended up doing very well. It got acquired for a couple of billion down the line. So I guess, what were some of the patterns that you saw there, you know, perhaps like the three patterns that you saw that really were clicking to really make such a successful company? Because I mean, you saw that all the way from the garage into, you know, finally being acquired for a couple of billion. So I'm sure that you were able to really, you know, put certain things together and that, you know, you were like, okay, you know what, you know, one day when I start my company, I'll make sure that I have, you know, those three things, you know, in mind. Yeah, I mean, I think the the biggest thing that that whole experience uh, communicated to me was something that I was saying earlier, which is, I mean, imagine seeing that when you're a kid, right? Your brain is still forming at some low level. You take for granted that it's possible to change the world or to build something big out of nothing, and it's not insane or crazy or unusual. Um, certainly you don't think of it as a high percentage odds, but you, you, you take for granted that it's possible. And I think that, yeah, I think that really for me, um, makes any challenge something that you feel like if I can build the right, you know, framework and, and do the work, I could, I could scale that mountain. So that there was something that was magical there. And I actually remember that <laughs> hilariously. So this is our garage at home. And they set up a bunch of picnic tables and laptops, but they also felt the need for whatever reason to set up soft seating. So they had a little couch and a like crappy little table, you know, and they would, um, they would subscribe to these business magazines. And at the time in the nineties, there was like these, these very specific tech magazines, business 2.0, red herring. I mean, these are gone 20, 25 to 30 years ago now. Um, but I remember they never looked at these things, right? They were running a company. Their hair was on fire. They were hiring and firing and, you know, trying to scrounge for capital. But I would sit there at nighttime in the garage and just like leaf through these things. And it would be like young person starts a business, you know, um, and it becomes this like multi-hundred million dollar enterprise. And so I think just getting a view early in life into these are regular people who combined with an idea and a team and working hard could actually build something big. That was powerful. It really brought it down to size, I think. That was the first thing. The second was that consistency is everything. Like, you know, you got to keep doing the work. And I think just for me, watching that be a very nonlinear process where it was um, existential at points in their their you know journey that this company could completely unwind, break up, not get funding and so on. And then they would hit, you know, a stride and just keep pushing through. Consistency is everything. That's another thing that, you know, I took away. This is probably the two biggest. Um, anything is possible and it takes just an insane amount of uh, one foot in front of the other for a long time. 
Now, in your case, I mean, you also had the uh, competitiveness in you. I mean, not only on when it came to sports, but then also when it came to studies. I mean, you went to Stanford, you know, yeah. one of the top schools. And then also you, I mean, to study like crazy stuff like physics, but then also you were playing Com competitive soccer. I mean, yeah. I mean, it's a like you were competitive on every single angle that you could think of. Yeah, yeah. You know, for me, I like to run to a challenge. You know, and you can't probably get a sense of me, but I'm not the biggest, most physically gifted person, and so soccer for me was um, a life lesson in I've got to out hustle everyone just to be on their level. You know, and that was a gift to to have that experience. Um, and then I remember I went to Stanford thinking I wanted to do computer science and economics. I wanted to build businesses. This is what I thought and took those classes and was bored because I had been doing it for years, right? At least the, the coding side of things. And I took this class with, um, Lenny Susskind. He's a, he's a legendary physicist and it was an intro physics class. He didn't use a textbook. He wrote some stuff and basically communicated his disappointment that most of us would never understand this stuff. And I did horribly in the class. And for me, my reaction was, I want more of this. This is it's lighting me up, you know? And, um, and the best way I can describe it is I like to put myself in a position where I feel engaged. And, you know, whether it's running a company or running down the field or, you know, doing, you know, astrophysics research, you get this feeling that like you feel your heart pumping, your brain moving, you're sweating because you're stressed, like you're using all of your physicality, which is uh, it's kind of the mode that I like to be in. Now, now, in this case, you know, you were in this mode and and ultimately one thing that you did is eventually, you know, you went into startup into startup land, you know, so so you connected with Max Levchan and then also with. Keith Rabois, you know, we're talking about people uh, coming out of PayPal. You know, Max uh, Lefchan, one of the one of the founders there. Keith Rabois, you know, also part of the PayPal mafia, as they call it. So, how do you connect with these guys? And and how was that decision of all of a sudden drop, drop dropping out, you know, and leaving the studies behind? You know, I was doing research in an incredibly esoteric corner of astrophysics. Inside of astrophysics, I was focused on high energy astrophysics, so gamma ray spectrum, and this one particular phenomenon. And I would write, it would take me three years, I would write this paper with some, you know, a group of uh, co-authors. And then you could see the online view counts. And it's like two people viewed it, like fewer than the number of authors on the paper, you know, and it's like, what am I doing? You know, so I think for me, Meanwhile, my friends are starting companies and I had this, you know, inherent passion for this. Um, it became clear to me as I started down the path of academia that actually what I want to do is go and build things. And I started to spend some time with startups and frankly was just unimpressed, you know, with the level of thought and rigor, you know, coming from academia. And um, actually my physics TA at Stanford had just joined Max and Keith. I think he had um, I don't know how he did it, but he ended up like building some little product that got acquired by Microsoft or something. And so he had kind of felt and dipped his toe into tech. So he ended up working for them on the data science side. And, uh, and so I, I kind of, you know, waltzed in and said, Hey, I want to meet these guys. And, uh, the, the interview process was, it blew me away. I mean, I think they were asking me to write proofs of like the, you know, law of large numbers or something. And I was like, these are people I could spend time with. So, so I ended up joining as the low man on the totem pole. The rest of them had built, you know, a lot of them were at PayPal, other people had been in tech, 
and I was this weird academic and um and then raised my hand over and over to you know do the projects that people didn't want and uh and then just grew from there from data science into product and then ran product for our largest uh, property and you know um kept kept pulling on that thread well that company slide ended up getting acquired by Google so uh you know quite a quite the ride because you were there for a little bit over 2 years so i'm sure that those two years were unbelievable. I guess what what kind of uh, visibility did that give you into? Well, two things come to mind. What kind of visibility did that give you into the acquisition uh, process, also the integration process? Because then you were at Google for even though it was short lived, you know, it was a little bit. So you were able to really see what it looks like when doing the integration with an acquirer. But yeah. really on the on the on the acquisition and on the full cycle of a business, what kind of visibility did that give you? Yeah, it's a great question. So we weren't a massive company. And I think, you know, like I said, the thing that I was working on was our largest property and, and most of our revenues. So um, so definitely got a view into um, the acquisition. A lot of that was, it was kind of two principles, you know, working things out. Um, but then in terms of integration, that's where, you know, I did get a, a lot of interaction and you know the thing is google's probably the best right when it comes to being thoughtful about integration youtube is a chief example is it, is it possibly the best acquisition ever um at least that's on the table um but it's always hard you know and i think for us we got to google at a time of intense change this is like 2010 so a little over a decade ago you know larry's taking over as ceo from eric and we bought motorola um to try to scale up the efforts in Android. And so the company goes, it doubles in size, new leadership. Um, and so I think for me, it was, um, it was actually the biggest gift of it all was to be able to get a close view of Larry and Sergey and how much, how genius they were and the people around them uh, were. And uh, you know, we came in feeling like we were the rebels. We were smart, we got acquired. And then we meet, you know, these, these guys and realize there's a, there's a lot more to go uh, in terms of understanding how technology can impact the world. And they had been, they had a humongous head start at picking up this thing. So, I mean, it took no time for you to say, hey, it's my time to shine now. So, uh, you know, what, what got you to that point with your company, with Sosh? Because that was your first rodeo. And, um, you know, I'm sure that taking that leap of faith, you know, was quite an interesting moment in your career. Yeah, I mean, everybody told me I was crazy. You know, we were acquired by Google and we had a really particularly interesting perch there um working uh you know on some pretty interesting things but um but it was a like i said a hundred thousand person plus company and it moved at a measured pace as it should right um meanwhile i'm in my 20s and i want to take risks learn things and like i think we were talking about before i want to be maximally engaged right and uh and so i was doing my job during the day and at night uh was just just had a, a thousand ideas running through my head um, a group of us who had been at Slide together and built a lot of things together, we left to start this company, Soch. And the interesting pattern recognition now, you know, you don't even realize this going forward, but looking backwards, there's a saying that like to a hammer, everything is a nail. Is that the saying? Um, that sometimes you have a particular insight or a tool in your tool belt that you use over and over. And for me, I think looking backwards, what that is, is I am intensely interested in, in human augmentation, not replacing humans with technology, but using technology to take unique human 
things like good taste or empathy or, um, you know, intimacy and to use technology to try to amplify those things. And so the, the company Soch was all about this challenge of finding interesting things to do in any city, right? Whether that city is Madrid or New York City, there's such a humongous amount of interesting things and not just, you know, what is a quite a solved problem is what are all the places here? What are the pins on maps? But actually within those places, there might be a dish that's particularly amazing or a dish this week that's particularly amazing, right? Um, or there might be these temporal things that are happening, events and a wine tasting and a, you know, so on. And these are really hard. In fact, it's still quite an unsolved problem to figure out what is interesting, who would care about that, and temporally, when should this person hear about this? And what we had, our basic insight with that company was we wanted to scale good taste. We could recognize that in any market or metro or city or community, there is someone who has like amazing taste to intuitively ask, hey, what, what should I do? Where should I go? What should I eat? And the basic insight of this company was let's take a person like that with great taste and use technology to increase the throughput of things that they could look at or evaluate by like a thousand X. So we would do everything from, you know, ingest lots of information from the internet, OCR menus to text. We would look at social media and so on and like bring, you know, distill all of these things down into in a discrete number of categories in a market, here are these things to do. And you'd take this human who would tell you that looks interesting, that doesn't. On a rainy day, that's cool, but on a sunny day, I wouldn't do that. And you know, you have you get these reactions and you learn, and it's very recursive. Um, and so we built that, we started to scale it up, and what we realized we were doing, we were actually mapping markets without having to physically be on the ground. And at the same time, uh, there was a whole host of of tech companies that were launching physical businesses in a bunch of new markets. Think of Uber and Lyft and uh, DoorDash and Postmates and you know on and on and on. There were so many different companies that were moving market by market. And they would deploy these huge teams, you know, months before opening a market to like basically walk around and figure out like what, what, what are the businesses that matter here and what are the neighborhoods? And we could do that from HQ. So we ended up getting acquired at Soch by, uh, by Postmates where we powered a lot of that you know, thinking of how do you go and understand a market from afar? Um, and that's what then ended up taking me there. And amazing investors that you got in Soch. I mean, you got Sequoia, you got Kosla, you got Battery. Yeah. What about what about fundraising there? I mean, especially on getting investors of that caliber. I mean, what 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 were what was like the takeaway? You know, after you guys did the acquisition and you were looking back, you know, on the transactional side and also as the journey with the company. What was that lesson that you needed to take with you from that experience with Sosh? Well, you know, we started that company, what did I say, 2011? That was like dead in the middle, now we can see, of this really long, two decades long bull run, right? And so lesson, if that's what you're thinking about, was... Uh, that was the peak of probably, or maybe not the peak, but that was really the beginning of some bad habits. And we were thinking about building a wonderful consumer product, but we were not. We had lost the lesson, which I should have had, right? Because I was around in the 90s. I was around in, uh, even in 2008, was building companies in the, you know, uh, the Great Recession. But we, we had sort of lo or, um, uh, we'd lost that thread that we should be concepting this as a whole you know, business. And we had, we had some thoughts there. 
but we weren't as disciplined about that. So lessons, certainly that we had built wonderful technology, great consumer use case. Um, and then, like I said, luck of the draw, there was so many companies that needed what we did, which was wonderful. Um, but you said, what are the takeaways? One of the takeaways I'll tell you that I took away was so striking to me was that um, I think I really understood Silicon Valley after building and selling that company. And one of the like principal memories that I have was walking into one of these incredible investors. We had no business, you know, like working with, and it was a Friday evening it was the only time they could squeeze us in. I think this was like a series a investment at the time. So we were, we had, I think, I don't know if we had even shipped a product. Maybe it was early. It was Friday at 6 PM. I drive down from San Francisco to, you know, Sand Hill thinking, you know, it's like the end of the day, maybe I'll have a chat with a partner. And I walk in and the entire partnership is in there. You know, it's like full of legendary investors. And they're all totally studied on who we are. They're attentive. In fact, you know, uh, incredibly successful investor pulling out a chair for me, welcoming me and grabbing me water. And they're listening to my little idea. I felt so embarrassed that I had dragged all these people out Friday at, you know, 6, 7 p.m., talking about my idea to find cool things to do, you know, in your city. But the, the genuine interest in who is this young person? What is this idea? How can we wrap our heads around it and challenge it and have a great conversation? Uh, we ended up, do, they ended up doing the investment. But I remember walking away saying, you know, on a rational basis or any other person would not take the time to do this. And yet that's the work they're doing. It was so inspiring to, to, to try to understand that like, here's a place and, and there is an insidery issue that Silicon Valley has always had and, you know, increasingly is sort of breaking. But, um, but if you can spend some time with these people, they are truly generous and thoughtful with their, their thinking. Um, they want to hear your idea. And um, I remember being blown away that that was how things worked here. And, uh, and then resolved that I would do the highest quality work I could and try to bring that, you know, back to these, these types of folks to, to be challenged and um, to build some great things. Hey guys, this episode is brought to you by .tech Domains. I mean, obviously, if you're a startup or an entrepreneur, you got to be super careful on how you go about your presence and how you get the catchy domain. And that's why I recommend .tech Domains as the go-to place to really get your own domain. Uh, a good example here is Aurora.tech, which is an innovative brand that has the .tech domain associated to it. Aurora.tech actually works at the intersection of rigorous engineering to address one of the most challenging issues of our generation, which is transforming the way that people and goods move. It is set to launch Horizon, which is Aurora's first autonomous service that's designed to bring safety value and efficiency to carriers and fleet owners. I've actually arranged an amazing deal for all of you, and that is you can get your one-year domain for $10 or a five-year domain for $50. Just go to go.tech forward slash dealmakers. And that's again, go.tech forward slash dealmakers to get your own. Now, in your case, you know, obviously the acquisition happened, you know, then you joined Postmates as the director of product, you know, helping there with the integration tool. And in your case, you know, you decided to go into Cosla Ventures to do their entrepreneur in residence program. And you did that for a little bit over a year. So Obviously, an entrepreneur, always an entrepreneur. So you knew that you wanted to launch something else. So why doing it via, you know, a VC? You know, it's funny you say that. I wasn't sure if I wanted to start a company or join a company. Um, that, that's what I told myself at the time. It turns out 
I wanted to start a company. And uh, I felt more dangerous than ever. I had built several things, built teams, raised capital, and wanted to find a problem that was deeply meaningful to me. Why did I do it that way? Um, what I needed was a chance to not be fully occupied doing something. And I basically have the, you know, speed of it's like, you know, it's, it's on or it's off. And so if I, if it's on, I'm like highly engaged and, and thinking about it all day, all night. Um, so I stepped away from operating uh, for a year and the thinking there was a, I will be able to see a lot of smart people and ideas and, um, and that can spark some, uh, some inspiration. And then B, there's always this thinking of like, should I invest in other people's companies? Is that like an interesting path for me? And maybe I'll, you know, have a chance to see that here. And I did. I wrote some checks into people's companies and and, and looked at that. Turned out I hated that. That was not uh, where my skill set lies. Um, generating deal flow and, and running a portfolio, managing a portfolio is not my thing. I like to go deep on things. Uh, so pretty quickly learned that. Um, but what was hugely beneficial about having had that experience was quote unquote sitting on the other side of the table. And I remember a company in local, you know, uh, came up at this fund and they were like, well, hey, you built, uh, you know, pretty interesting company in local, you know, whatever um, consumer businesses. Should we invest in this company? And this is like, I don't know, month one that I showed up there. And I'm like, oh, absolutely. This founder's high quality. I like the general idea. And they were like, well, if the check has your name on it, uh, are you signing it? And I was like, well, hold on. If I'm going to sign the check, I have a five questions I need to ask. We ended up not doing that investment. Um, and it was a great lesson for me in thinking through what is a business? What are the type of bets we want to place? And you know, also, what are the motivations of a portfolio manager like a VC? Um, and they're not always the same as a founder where you are in one venture you know, pretty much entirely. Um, so, so that was a great um, experience as a founder to have the perspective of this is a huge part of the ecosystem that I work with in terms of you know venture funding um, to really understand how that works was, was a gift. The second amazing thing that happened was, um, was exposure to huge ideas. And the fund I was at did about, I would guess, a third of its investments in healthcare and probably more now. And this was a lot of it was clinical healthcare. It was, you know, drug discovery algorithms and software for our doctors and medical devices. Um, and so I became really intensely interested in, in this because as a matter of course, these entrepreneurs would walk in and they would want to talk about their, you know, usually clinical healthcare company. And they would, to set context, say, well, you know, 75% um, of Americans are obese or overweight. And everyone in the room would say, yep, yep, that's, that's right. And I was like, what? That's insane. Is that true? You know, and it's the CDC stat, it turns out. And 60% of Americans have uh, chronic conditions and 80% of us are going to die of one of these things. And the big kind of trend takeaway was we spend an incredible amount of not only dollars, 20% of GDP, but also time and energy on this problem of human health in this country, let's just take this country as an example. And yet by many measurable uh, indicators, quality of life is decreasing year on year. You know, life expectancy is decreasing year on year. Compared to our peer nations, we have unremarkable life expectancy and, and, and uh, quality of life. How could that be? And as you start to pull on that thread, I think you find a lot of things. But one of the things that you find is that the modern expectation of the American consumer, at least, and I think this does uh, convey, you know, even more broadly, 
is that you and I, Alejandro, will manage our day-to-day health on our own. That's sort of the expectation of you as an adult, that you're eating right and figuring out what that means, that you're yeah. moving enough, that you're sleeping eight hours, that you're dealing, if you're stressed, you should deal with it. You should meditate, you should breathe. I don't know what you should do, but the expectation is that you will take those things on and figure them out. And it turns out that that's a completely losing proposition. You know, your average American is so overburdened. They've got a job or two and they've got a partner or a family or they're dating. They have social obligations and bills to pay and student debt. There's so much on their plate already that the idea that they will take on complicated domains like nutrition, which frankly, we don't understand that well, and kinesiology, physiology, and sleep and stress is actually a completely um, absurd idea. And, um, and so I think the, the focus of the firm on healthcare gave me exposure to that. It also gave me exposure to other big, big ideas in housing, and education, and, and other domains. And a lot of times, I'm sure you've seen with entrepreneurs you spent time on, you learn lessons from one area to apply to another, right? Um, and when you can kind of start to really understand commonalities, you can say, this company has done something very well in a completely separate domain. I wonder if some of those principles will apply here. Uh, and that's what being an EIR really did for me is it introduced me to this particular problem. And we talked about being a lifelong athlete and being the recipient of coaching and having performed at a high level. So there was an inherent interest. My wife is a physician and a med school professor. There was I was dangerous, just, just had enough knowledge about healthcare to kind of have um, a working, you know, conversational knowledge. And then to see all these brilliant people working on these things, it started to congeal pretty quickly that this is where I wanted to spend the next 10, 20 years of my life. And, um, and then, you know, ended up starting that company future out of there. So then let's say, talk about future. Uh, so yeah. you meet your, you obviously you, you talk with Justin, you guys say you're now become co-founders on, on future. Yeah. What, what is future? I mean, give us the, uh, what is the business model of future for the people that are listening to get it? How do you guys make money there? It is the easiest, most simple idea in the world. And the idea here is take something like exercise. Everybody tries. American consumers spend 50 or $100 billion a year trying to get fit, and they will fail at massive rates. 80% of Americans don't move enough. And what, like I, what we talked about here was the expectation is that you're on your own managing it and that we expect you to do it. Future was just designed to be the exact polar opposite of that. And what we do is we put someone helpful, a coach, in your life every single day to help you manage your health. Not episodically, every day you're going to touch base with this person over text message. And that is the radical opposite of being on your own. And so what the form is, is here, it's a personal trainer who you don't actually meet in person, right? They'll train you remotely. And what we pattern recognized was when I said 80% of Americans don't work out enough and everybody fails, there's a huge churn curve here of exercise. It's become the great American experience to join a gym in, in January and fall off by March and you know want to try it again you know, the next January. Um, what we found um, was, you know, we already described how we said, it feels quite understandable. Your average person can't sustain all these healthy behaviors. We instead wanted to study the inverse. And we said, where are there groups of people who can maintain uh, high performance or healthy living for extended periods of time? Not three or six months at a time, but 10 years, 20 years on end. Who can do that? And what are they, what solutions are they employing? And what we found was in niche populations like pro athletes or uh, Fortune 100 execs or, you know, these like little tiny groups of people who you can say perform at a high level for extended periods of time. What we found is they all do the same thing, which is they get help. 
And now these are people who have the means to get help. They're part of an organization that's investing or they themselves can invest in this. But what they typically do is they get a personal trainer who tells them exactly what to do with their fitness. They get a chef who stocks the fridge with 12 meals a week. Uh, all these pro athletes we work with now have a sports psychologist who they can text or touch, you know, anytime they, they need something, which is really just a therapist, to be very honest. And, and on and on, what they were doing was surrounding themselves with a constellation of experts to make it possible to perform at a high level when you are also otherwise very occupied. And, um, and when we studied in a word, what they were all reaching for was coaching. When we studied coaching, we were like, why fundamentally is coaching so effective? What we found, and just think about a fitness coach, a personal trainer is we found that they do really do three things that are a amazing gift for any person. And the first is they tell you exactly what to do, no matter the constraints of your day right? You're running 30 minutes late because a meeting ran late or your right shoulder hurts or uh, you took a red eye and you slept horribly last night. Whatever your constraints are, you can communicate them to this human coach and they'll take that into account. And now off you go uh, with a safe and adapted and effective plan, effective plan. And the gift there is you no longer ever have to think, am I doing enough? Am I doing the right things? You can turn your brain off and just follow. So that's the first thing that a coach does for you. The second thing that we saw them do was by dint of being another person who's investing in your, you know, fitness success is they keep you accountable, right? And it turns out this one-to-one -one accountability of another human is this very special and acute form of accountability. And the reason is physiologically, we are wired to want to mirror the person we're dealing with. And so if you have a coach who's invested, hey, I built you a plan, I'm excited or I'm intense, whatever they're, whatever they're displaying, we have a physiological need to want to mirror that intensity or excitement or investment. And that mechanism of having another person who's there for you, picks you up when you're down, pushes you when you need to be, is um, it's an incredible form of accountability. That's the second thing the coach does. So telling you what to do, they keep you accountable. But the third thing we saw people, coaches do with people, and this third thing was when we actually decided there's something to build here, was if you ever watch a coach and a, a trainer and a client on a gym floor, you'll notice they spend a lot of their time just chopping it up, talking about non-fitness things, the vacation they're taking, or they're talking trash about the Knicks, or you know that type of thing. And most technologists, I think, look at this and say, okay, well, that's et cetera. So when I automate this or whatever, I build something here, I'm going to deliver your training plan every day. And we felt like that was super interesting that as somebody gets to know you, it allows them to anticipate your hurdles, your needs um, better than you could articulate. Um, and it allows them to push you harder than they could otherwise. And so long way around, a coach tells you what to do, keeps you accountable and gets to know you. And Justin, my co-founder you talked about, uh, he built the first version of iMessage and ran the team that did communications for 10 years, built FaceTime. You know, he had spent... 15 years thinking about how to connect people from afar to build intimacy and connection and trust at Airbnb to build enough trust to have a transaction between two strangers, right? Um, and we felt like maybe this coach doesn't have to be standing next to you to tell you what to do, keep you accountable and to get to know you. Perhaps in this day and age, they could use technology to build a plan for you every day. We could strap an Apple Watch to you and out there a thousand miles away from you, they can see if you're doing it or not. And we'll connect you over text message every day. And now you have that bridge to get to know one another. And the end result has been remarkable. We're the largest full-time employer of coaches in America today. Our customers are all types of people. On average, they trade four text messages every day with their coach, meaning they'll talk 1,500 times a year. Um, this is the radical opposite of trying to tackle your health on your own. 
and they will double the amount of exercise they do on average. So our, our members work out every other day for 40 minutes and, and this nothing looks like this in consumer care. Well, hey, that's amazing because I'm definitely one of those that uh, got the gym membership, you know, and that every year, you know, is, uh, you know, I try to give myself a push to make it happen, but it doesn't you happen. You so, and uh, everyone. It's not, nothing to feel bad about. It's that. just unbelievable. Now, now for, for this company, for future, how much capital have you guys raised to date? We've raised over $100 million. And obviously, you know, great investors that you have there too. Now, obviously, part of the investment too is the vision. So let's talk about the vision. If you were to go to sleep tonight and you wake up in a world where the vision of future is fully realized, what does that world look like? That's a world where people can focus on reaching their personal potential in their personal, professional lives and not be expending a ton of energy wondering, what should I be doing for exercise? How much should I be eating? Did I sleep enough? But rather, they have access to a group of people who care for them. And imagine somebody who is battling um, diabetes and obesity and needs to walk 30 minutes a day, but doesn't have the muscle memory or the infrastructure to do that, to wake up and get a text from that partner to say, hey, I know we didn't get that walk in yesterday, but it's okay. I've been there and we're going to get it in tomorrow or today, or, you know, we're going to, let's do six minutes today. Um, to have that kind of hand to reach out to you on a proactive level um, with somebody thinking about you overnight, you know, thinking about how do I set Rishi up for success? That's the world we hope, um, which then actually abstracts away a lot of the worrying about health and actually puts your brain power and focus back on being a great mother or student or both, if that's what life is all about. Um, but feeling physically capable to pick up your kids and put them in the crib. And you're not super forward rotated because you and your coach in the background have thought about that, you know? Um, so that's the world that we hope for where people can reach their personal potential because they're cared for. Not just when they get a catastrophic, you know, um, diagnosis, but all every day continuously. Um, and we don't see that happening if we don't go and affect that. Um, I talked about human augmentation. That's the investment here that ultimately the job of care and empathy and accountability, those are human, um, human traits, human jobs. And our goal is to use technology to take one expert and um, on the IQ of being your coach, give them access to the best of the best, the latest and greatest, and to give them a lot of leverage doing that. And on the EQ of being your coach, to give them a lot of assistance to say, you haven't heard, you haven't touched base with Rishi today, or usually he's most responsive at, you know, 6 p.m. Pacific, because that's when he usually wraps up his day. So don't text him at 2 p.m. He's, he's doing something, you know, um, and to put that coach in a position to be successful, to be your partner, to remember the name of your kid, or to see that your team got blown out yesterday and to make a joke about that, you know, um, that's the work is human augmentation and to take one expert scale them to many more people they could reach in, uh, in real life, you know, driving around town, being your personal trainer for one hour, being my personal trainer for one hour. That is a very restricting uh, activity because you, you have a very lumpy demand curve. It's haphazard matching of supply and demand locally. And here now we can give you the best, most wonderful coach for you who might be a thousand miles away, but can be actually quite connected to you. So now let's talk about the past, but doing it with a lens of reflection. I bring you back in time to that moment where you were at Google and you were sitting down there and you were just like wondering what was next for you. And you have the opportunity of sitting right next to that younger Rishi and you're able to give that younger Rishi one piece of advice before launching a business. What would that be and why given what you know now? 
You know, the advice I would give that person because he hadn't yet crystallized it, but he had learned it already, is that consistency is everything. That if you want to big build, build big things, change the world, be successful in some regard, um, it's a lot of work over a long period of time. A career is a long period of time. You know, I was thinking about Steve Jobs launched the iPhone 2007, right? He was 52 when he made that announcement, right? That didn't happen overnight. It was the culmination of decades of work and thought, and it was all compounding. And I think that as a young person, you want uh, results now, especially if you were if you got results early, you know, I walked in the first company I walked into, we had, you know, a great, great outcome. Um, you start to expect that things will happen quickly. Um, and I think instead it's over the course of a career, you keep moving forward, keep being thoughtful, continuously integrate new information. The only advantage you have over the established, you know, geniuses and, and um, incumbents is agility. So constantly learn and constantly move, you know, and, uh, and just doing that over and over, over a long period of time will pay huge dividends. I'd probably tell them a couple of other things, about <laughs> you know, that yeah, build a robust framework and, uh, you know, find the points of differentiation and lean hard into those, you know, lots of different little, you know, lessons, but, um, the, but the biggest one is, is to keep going. So for the people that are listening that would love to reach out and say, hi, Rishi, what is the best way for them to do so? Uh, you know, on Twitter, I'm at Armandel and my email is Rishi at future.co. I am always there and very responsive. Hey, well, easy enough. Well, Rishi, thank you so much for being on the Dealmaker Show. It has been an honor to have you with us today. Alejandro, thanks so much. Enjoyed it. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, Share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.